why don't we just kick it off? We like to start learning about your uh, early days, your childhood. Uh, you grew up in Korea? I did, I did. Uh, I was born and raised in Korea until I was 13 years old. It is uh, when we landed in U.S., we landed in LAX, March 30, 1986. Okay. Wow. So how was life like in Korea? Life like in Korea? Um, you know, like now I look back how propaganda-driven the country was. Like, so we were going through like a, a huge revolutionary change in the country, right? It had just come out from the Korean War. Um, it was establishing itself. And uh, when you walked around or dro drove around in a car, you cannot go one block without seeing some sort of big sign. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's like, it. I remember like it would say things like, um, good children wake up early in the morning. Like it's, it's, wow. things that are I guess it could have been worse that. than that. That's, I mean, that's a... Yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, like but social yeah. propaganda, you know? Though, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, wake up early and be the winner and just things like that were just written all over on the street. Why do you think that was? Yeah, why do you think that was? Was it just to like, uh, you know, the government trying to get people productivity. to... Productivity. Yeah, productivity. Interesting. Yeah, that was that's what it was. We had a president, like in the in the especially in the nineteen seventies, we had a president. He was almost a dictator, actually. Um, what was and, his name? Oh my God, uh, uh, Park. Okay. Um, Park. His last name was Park, and uh, he was. But because of him, Korea had gone from poverty-stricken country to a pros prosperous country hmm. in probably like twenty years. Wow. At what cost, though, to the people of, of Korea, like to the Korean people? Was, was it a negative thing, I would assume? or No, it was a positive was thing. Was it actually. positive? Yeah, I would say it was a positive thing. Like at that time, during that time, at that period, that's what it was needed. Yeah. How did that impact your family? Do you remember? I know you said you were 13 when you came here, so I assume you remember something. Yeah. Um, how did that impact us? That... Actually, that did not impact our family, um, but it was just uh, uh, when we decided to move to U.S., it was because we all come to America for a better life, and that's what we were after. Mm -hmm. well, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned kind of like, or I guess, uh, how old did you mention you were when you moved here? 13. 13. Um, obviously, like, a 13 is an interesting age because you're kind of like just kind of maybe getting into high school right, right around that time. School. Junior high yeah. and then getting mm -hmm. into high Seventh school. Seventh grade. Exactly. Um, what I guess before that time, like what were what were some things that you were maybe interested in back home in Korea, like as a kid younger than thirteen, that you can remember? A uh, few things. I wanted to be a writer. Um, I was really good at writing, so I wanted to be a writer. And uh, I second thing was I wanted to be an Egyptologist. I had this obsession with Egypt, and I wanted to be an Egyptologist. Um, and uh, very interestingly, starting third grade, I promised myself that I was never going to get married. I don't know why, where, I don't know where that came from. Um, yeah, those three things I remember. And uh, was there something in your life that led you to that thing of like, I don't want to get married? I have no idea why. I like really have no idea why. Did um, you ever change your mind? I did, obviously, because I did get married. <laughs> not, I'm not married anymore, but I did, uh, I did, I, I, I did get married uh, the year I turned 40. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, so, um, but I, what I did was I was, I was always living in an imagination, imaginary world. 
uh, my dad didn't buy us a lot of toys, but he bought he bought us books. So we were uh, expected to read a book a week. So we just I just read through a lot of books, and uh, my playtime was because I didn't have any toys to play with. My playtime was just sitting by myself and spending a lot of time just getting lost in my own imagination. Mm. And um, hindsight, I look back, and those were like really like I was manifesting without knowing that I was manifesting. I was meditating without knowing that I was meditating. Mm. You know. Mm. What were what were some of the books that you were reading? Oh, we had like, so this is pre-13. So, you know, there were a lot of uh, uh, children's books, of course. Um, it was a lot of like the U.S. or the European version of books that are translated into uh, into Korean. But I was like a really advanced reader where I was reading like uh, Madame Bovary at sixth grade, mm-hmm. <laughs> adult version of Madame Bovary <laughs> that I was supposed to, that I was not supposed to read. Right. <laughs> yeah, we have, I, we're in your room and, and I, I assume this is like a, uh, like an office slash study. Like there's a yeah, bunch of yeah. This is my office. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch Home of books office. I'm seeing here, and I'm just trying to trying to see. Like like so, was there anything in particular? You mentioned Egypt all Egypt. Like you, how did you yeah. even? I, I see an Egyptian book right there. Actually, Egypt. Uh, the game book. Yeah. Yeah. Um. How how did you even come interested in into that? Egypt, particularly because it's one of the seven, it's one of the seven mysteries of the of the world, right? Um, and uh, you know, surprisingly, um, if you anybody who's lived outside of U.S. would and grew up and raised and educated outside of U.S. will say the same thing that um, a lot of the non-U.S. country students learn a lot more about other countries' culture. Yeah, it's built into. Sounds about right. It's built into the uh, the school learning system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in the American school system, you kind of just gloss over things. Right. Right. It's like, well, here's what happened in the Middle East. Here's what happened in Asia. Here's what happened in Europe. And here are some of the wars. And see you later. But I feel like nowadays, content, YouTube, obviously podcasts, all this stuff. You know, it's up to you to have that exposure and to actually want to be learning those things or visiting those places and it's become a lot more accessible in my opinion than yeah you know even 10 20 30 years ago oh for sure uh, for sure especially with youtube because you could see like these like 15 minute clips 20 minute clips like short snippets right. of whatever subject or content that you want to consume uh but you know back in the day if the schools were not teaching you if they were not teaching like or the parents or the mm-hmm. school teachers were not actively teaching the students you know you had no right. idea you had zero access to the outside world do you think that having this like global view global knowledge had some sort of a positive impact on you early on and if so what was that impact uh, i definitely did um so that's just my childhood but what really changed my life was the year I went to Italy for a Cosmoprof Bologna show uh, to Italy, uh, Bologna, Italy. And that was, uh, I was, this is the year I was turning uh, 25. And it really opened my eyes. It like truly, really opened my eyes to the potential possibilities of what's out. Like, I felt like I was a frog living in a well, like literally that's. Like, I understood what that felt. 
like a frog in a well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is, I'm talking about 1998, 1999, and this is a different world, right? Like right now, like plane tickets are cheap and uh, everybody's traveling everywhere. Of course, not during COVID, but you know, like pre-COVID, everybody's trying, like it's so much easier and cheaper and um, just everything to pull information of where to go. Like traveling became so easy, but like even like in the 90s, people were not traveling internationally that much. Mm-hmm. So um, I always say traveling is the biggest and the best education right. one person can have. Yeah. Yeah. I know you and I, Pat, talk about that a lot because, you know, both of our parents immigrants you know came in the i would say late 70s 80s mm. around that time you know we grew up in the 90s i really didn't have a chance to travel that much at all internationally i think now that we make money now that we're kind of have our own careers it's something that we're starting to do but there's clearly a difference between those people that have traveled and those that haven't not to say one's smarter than the other it's a different sort of you know knowledge base different sort of wisdom but you could tell when somebody is quote-unquote well-traveled and understands different cultures their their needs their history like it, i don't know it just gives you a different perspective on life back at home wherever home is for you i agree 100 percent. it just gives you a different perspective and you know i think one thing you realize is it doesn't matter where you go people are people right and people are good you know we like our news feed constantly feed us with everything that is wrong with the world, everything that is bad about people. But you will go to the remotest places in this in this world, and you will meet the nicest people, you know, right. and happy people, happy people who are nice and who smile and they want to talk to you, right. and you know, people are good. Yeah. Um, so when when you kind of came to the U.S., what was that experience like for you in terms of having the life you had? in Korea and then coming here to this like new place that maybe you didn't know much about like what was what was that kind of acclimation process like for you well it was really hard um it's not easy for a 13 year old to move to another country and be thrown in the school and say learn because um overnight you become this person with learning disability and you don't have learning disability but you don't I mean because I came to I came to U.S knowing how to speak three things. I knew how to say yes, no, and thank you. That's all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but before coming to U.S., when my my parents announced the fact that we're, we're going to U.S., I was jumping up and down, and I was the happiest kid because I was like, oh, my God, that's where Disneyland is. And um, uh, like I used to look, I used to see pictures of right. America where people have pools, swimming pools in the backyard. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to like go live in a country with a swimming pool in the backyard and go to Disneyland and all this like fun stuff. Um, but once we moved here, um, obviously we didn't have a lot of money. So, um, five of us moved into this two bedroom apartment in a not so good neighborhood and we're put in school. In LA. In LA, um, like it's called like the San Fernando Valley area, yeah. um, uh, like this little corner apartment that my mom's friend had rented for us, um, and we were put in. I was put in school, and basically, they my parents press a button, go button, and say go to school and figure it out. <laughs> um, the great thing is. Um, they have this. Uh, they have these classes called ESL, English as yeah. Second Language. Yeah. It's an immersive English 
learning classes. So you're in this for four hours a day. And uh, first six months, like I literally said to, to, through the class, like, like, like a blonde, uh, blind, uh, deaf, uh, who couldn't hear, speak, see anything because I can't, I couldn't understand anything, but slowly, you know, I started to hear like one word, two word, and then I started to hear and put together a sentence. And it took about two to three years for me to like finally open my mouth and say a sentence, Hmm. like a full sentence out of my mouth. Right. And uh, that was, I have to say, that was pretty challenging. It's not easy for a teenager to go to another country and, like, adapt and start their life. Was it easy to find friends or was that a challenge too? Uh, Friends was a little easier because um, there were other kids in that school who were like me. Right. So we kind of, like, hung around together. We understood each other. Sure. We understood our pain. Yeah. Um, so and now kind of in those later years in in like junior high, high school, did you start becoming interested in other other things now that you kind of had kind of this like idea of America and like what was going on here? Like were there other interests that you kind of came into? Yeah. Nightclub. <laughs> Nightclub? Nightclub. In middle no, school? No, no. What happened was <laughs> – so – at 13, I, I came to, not I, because, you know, it was my decision. My parents came and, I, you know, um, so I came as innocent as the fresh snow on the ground. I was so innocent. Uh, and then I came here and within two years, I was clubbing. <laughs> at 15 <laughs> at 15 i was where? clubbing huh where i had a fake id that nice. was 35 years old <laughs> the fact that the bouncers let me in <laughs> with the 35 year old woman's uh fake id what was the nightlife scene in la at the time because i feel like it's changed popping <laughs> oh Discos. it's changed so much uh it's changed so much like it was like the places that we went to was actually called a nightclub. It was it was a nightclub. So yeah. uh, you went there and there's the bar and you order uh, table service. And uh, yeah, so I became completely pure innocent to completely this devilish child in the span of two to three years. Interesting. <laughs> was it do you think that uh that had anything to do with like were you trying to rebel against anyone absolutely that yeah. was that was my pain coming through that was my anger coming through yeah anger yeah. with your parents anger with the parents anger you know that just a teenage rage number one mm-hmm. um number two the fact that um i became i overnight became a learning disability person like the fact that it's just like like everything. I right. feel like I my my childhood was stolen from me almost. You know. Yeah. So um so so I guess what kind of path did that lead you on? Like did you deep down be, feel like you knew what you were doing still? Like even though you were kind of rebelling and you you know you were you know kind of going into like I mean, like at that point, you know, a lot, maybe like a lot of kids are like, oh, I want to go to college. Like, did, was that on your mind? Were you trying to set yourself up for that? Like, what was kind of going through your head at the time? Um, yeah. So that happened too. But I, my grades were not good enough to go to college, number one. 
Um, and I saw then, you went to the school that Pat and I went to, which is Glendale Community College. Oh, did you guys go there? We, we did. No way. We did definitely go there. Oh, look at us, the yeah. three of us sitting in this there room. There you go. Interesting. <laughs> Something came out of Glendale College. Yeah. Good old, good the old greatness GCC. came out of Glendale College. Glendale College in Glendale, California. <laughs> I want to be specific. Yes. Yeah, not, not Glendale, Arizona. Arizona. That's right. The, the the better one in California. Yeah. Wow. Look at us. Yeah. 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 So I ended up going to uh, uh, Glendale <clears throat> College and, you know, the intention was to spend two years there and transfer over to a college. Yep. But um, along the way, I just dropped out and uh, I decided to start something on my own. And that's when I started to brew the idea of NYX Cosmetics. Are and- you the most famous Glendale College dropout? Besides you. No, 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 no. I, I didn't drop out. I said call it dropout. No, I should have dropped out. That would have been a better strategy than, you know, continuing. No, but that, that's awesome. So what was, I guess, how did you even conceptualize the idea of what NYX would be? I mean, were you at this point into makeup and beauty and fashion and Makeup, beauty, fashion, always. I think it's like in my blood. Right. Um, and uh, I worked at a family business. So uh, we did the most immigrant thing. Our family did the most immigrant thing as possible. We <laughs> started a little store. Yeah. Um, so I used to go work in the family business every after school, every weekend, every vacation. We never took a day off. Like, you know, textbook immigrant story. Um, and, uh, we, and my mom's the, uh, uh, head of the household. She's the matriarch and she is actually a really amazing business person. So we ended up having like multiple locations. Um, and eventually we folded everything and started a uh, wholesale distribution business in the beauty supply space. So I was familiar with, and I worked in the family business. I was familiar with the landscape of the market. Mm -hmm. And because I'm a consumer, I knew exactly what the consumers wanted and needed that was missing in the marketplace. And that was um, high efficacy color cosmetics uh, with great quality at a very affordable price that looked expensive. Mm. Um, And, you know, it's, looking like sleek and clean and uh, products then pre-1999 pre-nix cosmetic there were a lot of brands that were in the budget space but when you bought it you could like the packaging itself like you could tell that it's from a drugstore right and the quality was not really amazing um, versus when you went to department store, you find all these amazing, beautiful products and beautiful quality, but they were like really expensive. So I wanted to marry the two, and that's where NYX, NYX Cosmetics, hmm. that's how NYX Cosmetics was born. So did you kind of, uh, from the standpoint of like trying to grow the brand, like how did you start figuring out how you are going to do that, um, even though you kind of knew what you wanted and there was like a little bit of like a foundation to like get the product, you know, created and all that, but like how did you know how you were going to get it out there? Yeah, so the world was very different, right? So I feel like I'm a dinosaur now. Um, the world was very like there was we didn't even have like uh, oh I had an AOL email address back then. I'm sure okay, some people is, still have an AOL email God. address. So for those listening that have an AOL.com email address, please please get a Gmail. <laughs> I still have it. Nick's girl. Tony, please AOL. get a Gmail. <laughs> I do have Gmail <laughs> okay, good, too. Good, good. <laughs> um, so, and then like this is when the printers were still dot metrics and um, e-com was not a thing. Um, and there were definite structures of how 
products flew through in the marketplace. So there were importers and there were distributors and there were wholesalers, there were retailers, and then there were consumers. So you had to go pass through uh, five to six layers uh, of different profit rate percentage per every time it passed mm-hmm. through till a consumer had their hands on the product, right? Importers made 20%. Uh, distributors made another 20%. The wholesalers made 20%. And then the retailers finally made 100% markup. Um, and then that's what that's the SRP, suggested retail price, right? Um, and then there was the consumer. And how we sold the product was by going through all these trade shows. So there were all these trade shows. Um, they still have these shows. Um, not all of them. But some of them, like there used to be a show called the ASCMD show in Las Vegas. Um, it started as an army surplus show, but somehow like all these, all the brands came out. Um, trade shows in New York at the Javis Convention Center, trade shows in Miami. Like I was a warrior on the road going to all the trade shows. Um, and uh, that's where we met our customers. And you were like what, in the early 20s at this point? I was 20, I was 26. When I first started. And you had no clue. I mean, I assume you had a little bit of clue what you were doing, but like, you know, you didn't study business. You didn't, you know, talk to other entrepreneurs and mentors, I assume. I mean, you were just straight up learning on your own. I was straight up learning on my own, but um, I say but because um, my family is like, I'm third generation entrepreneur, I guess. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. My dad, although... You know, he's not the typical entrepreneur, but he did run our family business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mom's side, they're all entrepreneurs as well. So I think it's kind of like in me. And uh, when I was very young, I was the last child. I'm the, I'm the last child so you're in the, the rebel. family. You're a rebel to begin with. Yeah. So and I'm four years behind my my sister. So that means my sister and my brother, when they were at school, I was home because I was too young to go to school. And I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, my my grandpa, and like just being around. And you know, like when you're like really young, um, you don't like you're not consciously learning, but you're subconsciously learning. And I think I honestly really think that had a lot to do with how just how I view um, business, I kind of have like this unexplainable innate sense of how people behave and how do you view business? I'm curious. How do I view business? Uh, the most important thing is the only way to win is when everybody wins, and that is your supplier, you, your company, and your customers, the accounts. So it's a triangle, right? And all three points of the triangle needs to be profitable to be a successful business. And it's very important to me. So I don't squeeze my vendors very, very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get a quotation and I very rarely say I want like a per- certain percentage off right. the quotation or wh- whatever. Um, I do when I think about what the retail price should be per what my cost is. And that doesn't align, then maybe I will go back and say, hey, can you match this price? Because when I look at this product, I need to sell it at X amount and the cost does not allow me to be able to sell it at that amount. Mm -hmm. But um, if their first quotation 
comes in and then it is reasonable and I could see, I could like price it, then I don't even go back and ask for a discount. I, I say, fine, here's a PO, period. Mm-hmm. I want them to make money. They right. have to make money. They have to make money to survive, run their business. And it's very important for them to survive and run the business. And be motivated to come to work and make your, make your shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, here's the thing. Uh, the vendors, whose product are they going to make first? Right. Customers who pay them well. Yeah. So I pay everybody. Like, it's sharp. Um, credit is so very important to me. Um, and this is like one of the things that I used to always hear my grandfather. He, he, was, he used to say just things like, uh, um, like, you could never owe money to anybody. Like, um, you have to pay your debt even from your grave. Like, that's what he used to say. That's how important credit is to him. And it's just like kind of rubbed off on me. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. So, um, so I guess in terms of the initial stages of putting the products together, like, were, did you kind of go pretty wide in terms of how many different kind of products you were creating, or or was it pretty narrow? It, it was pretty narrow. Um, and I think, um, and I didn't know it wasn't purposely done narrow. Um, so. But I only had 18 SKUs when I launched. And I actually think that was the best strategy because it was a company. Uh, it was a, um, I, I, I say, when I first started, I had an employee of three. It's me, myself, and I. <laughs> <laughs> so if I had a lot of SKU, I would have been, I, I would have, it would, it would have been a suicide for me. Like it would, I would, the company would have suffered under the weight of having to carry too many SKUs. Um, I would not have been able to manage that myself. But it. because it was only 18 SKU, I was able to manage it myself. Hmm. Me, myself, and I. All three of so us. So it's more so from a standpoint of trying to manage it yourself and not necessarily trying to like throw too much at the market and like see, you know, kind of like maybe not, maybe going a little bit more niche. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely. So uh, we started with 18 SKU and I kept it at 18 SKU probably for a good two years. And when I added another product, that was like a two Like it took me close to three years to have three different style of items. Mm. More SKUs, more SKU count, but different style of items. And how are you getting accounts or how are you selling the product? Trade shows. That's it. Trade shows. But here's the thing. Um, the products were flying off the shelf. And where were they? Retail stores. I had one retail account, one retail store that was selling 50 to 60 pieces of these lip liner pencils a day. Wow. So what that did was, you know, the wars, wars. They don't have legs and they don't have feet, but they travel very fast. Um, the worst got out. So what happened was I had people coming to me, asking me to open an account for them instead of me going to, to all these accounts and trying to sell to them hmm. because products were selling so well. And it was purely like word of mouth merchandising or like, was there like a lot of marketing and stuff that you were doing outside of that? No marketing, zero marketing besides trade shows. You could call that a marketing too, right? Yeah. But besides going to trade shows, zero marketing. 
there was no social media. There was no Instagram. Yeah. There was no TikTok. <laughs> you know, like Vogue magazine. But hello, like like a page in Vogue magazine. It was probably like hundred thousand dollars. I couldn't afford that. Did right. that also mean that there was less noise in the space? Like you know. Not to diminish Nick's as a brand whatsoever, but would it have been more challenging to start it today where every person, including me and Pat, can have a beauty cosmetics company? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Absolutely. It was. Um, and there were there weren't as many brands back then. Right. There were um, some national brands, the brands that we know, all know, like Maybelline, CoverGirl, Max Factor, mm. Revlon, L'Oreal, like all of those brands. Um, but in the independent side of the beauty brand business, there weren't that many. Because those were all, those brands that you just mentioned were all kind of put together by like larger conglomerates like... L'Oreal. L'Oreal. Estee Lauder. Estee Lauder yeah. and all those. Yeah, One, yeah like... Really, when you walk into the floor at, say, Nordstrom or whatever, uh, 50% of those brands are owned by one company. The other 50% right. owned by the second other company. Right. Yeah. So It's yeah. like those sunglasses. It's like... It's like I think, yeah. What was 85% it? Yeah. of the market share. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's like one company. It's like 100 brands, but it's the yeah. same thing. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Or Diageo with alcohol. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, okay, cool. So, so in terms of like, was there like an, like a, like a point in the business, it sounds like kind of from the beginning, you were kind of hustling, you're getting it out there and, and there's a lot of interest and the word, word was spreading. Was there like a moment where you like realized, oh my God, this is going to be like way bigger than I imagined it would be. Like, did something happen? Was there like one moment or was it just like a gradual thing? Well, it was gradual and and a one moment too, because, you know, there's like that inflection point in business, right? Like business, like it doesn't matter whose business it is. No one's business climb at the same rate of growth year over year. Mm -hmm. There are years where you grow like crazy, 100%, 200%. And then there are some years where you just plateau for a little bit. And then another like crazy growth. Um, But so I launched this thing, uh, Color Cosmetic, 26 years old. First time starting a business. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, just going with my gut feelings on everything. Um, I'm working by myself, doing everything. Um, and then the first year, I did two million dollars in net sales. Crazy. Um, that's like in four million in retail value. Um, the year after, like I did double that. The year after, I did I did another almost double. So we're growing crazy, like really well. And two thousand, and it just kept on growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And then um, two thousand seven, something happened. Two things happened. That's when the real estate market crashed. December of two thousand seven is when the real estate. Remember, like it was yep. dark time, dark time. Um, but uh, you guys probably heard that um, the lipstick effect during recession. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a recession proof item because mm-hmm. it is something that you could pay. Five ten dollars right. and buy something that makes you feel good. Um, so I saw that really happening with my own eyes. I've heard of it before, but I've never experienced it. And this was my like this was the first recession um, after I started. I started my company, and I saw with my own eyes. Whoa! Like this lipstick theory is really true. Yeah. And then another thing happened. Um, YouTube happened. And I saw the first head, like first swing of YouTube selling 
when I saw this one item just started to fly off the shelf. And mind you, like this item was such a low seller. It was on the discontinued list. For like, you? For my company. And it just, out of nowhere, this item just started to sell, like fly off the shelf and we couldn't keep it in stock. And like, we're like, what is going on? Um, and one day I had a gal who was like really computer savvy and uh, she came and she said, hey, you know what I saw on you, this thing called YouTube? I saw somebody doing a tutorial using this item as like an eyeshadow base. And that's when I went like, oh my God, ding, 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 ding. This is like, I get it. You know, word of mouth marketing is the most effective marketing. This was amplified version of the word of mouth marketing, mm. right? Because before YouTube, before like things like this that we're on, um, somebody will buy a lipstick or something. And if they like it, they'll tell their sister, their mom, their aunt, and their friends. And that's it. Your network of probably maybe it will, if I sold one product to one person and they loved it, it would maybe reach 10 people in yeah. that one person circle. But now because of YouTube, we're reaching tens and thousands of her or his best friends yeah so did you end up like did you end up doing anything like investing in more like creating relationships with youtubers at the time early youtubers or creating content yourself like what did you end up doing based on that opportunity immediately um so we weren't content creators and we like content creator was that's not even that, that wasn't like that wasn't even a word no, like yeah. influencer was not it like these words have all been invented since like what now 12 14 years maybe right. um but anyway so what we started doing was we started to send products so now this is the uh, pr box like right. modern day pr box right yeah. but we were we just started sending out like one lipstick two lipstick or like just few products to like these um bloggers is so-called mm -hmm. the first generation of those bloggers oh my yeah. god and they were so talented too and uh, so that's when the company just like like grew crazy. 2009, I brought in an investor for the first time. Um, so started in 90, uh, 99 and 2009, I brought in. So 10 years into business, I brought in a uh, first time investor, um, did a uh, minority deal. And uh, the next. And you needed that for growth or what did you need that for? No, I needed smart money. Um, the company was, we were financially very stable because uh, one thing I've known being in the family business for a very long time and, you know, like third generation entrepreneur and being in business, like I had always seen like my family being, being like the roller coaster right, of the being highs and like lows. wealthy and poor and wealthy and poor. Like I saw, like I saw that like from very early on and I was very mindful of my expenses. So um, you could, I, I guess you could say I was like super cheap, but you know, like I basically, I was like, bro, like sweat equity. I put in a lot of sweat equity into the company. Right. Um, and I was very conscious about my spending in the business and, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. You could make million dollars, but if you spent $2 million, you're poor, right? you know, as a company, as a person. Um, so I was always, so I've never 
kind of like party like a rock star, I guess you could say. Well, you got that out of the way at 15. I, I, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I blossomed early. <laughs> right, 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 right. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I did that. And so company was like financially really stable. But um, What's smart money? Smart money is when people, when you partner with investors for their network. More got like. it. Yeah. Like a strategic, strategic raise. Part. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to get into like CBS, the, the, mm -hmm. the Walgreens, like the, the, the big box retailers. Mm -hmm. And I just could, I kept knocking on the door, knocking on the door. And I kept hearing no, 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 no. And it was really like, I didn't know how to go about opening accounts with these like large retailers. And we're going to these trade shows, um, targeting these large retailers, which were very expensive and just like year over year. Um, so I decided that I was going to sell a portion of my company to a strategic partner, a smart money people who's had the experience in the market that I wanted to get into, that they could be the bridge between my brand and then these like big box retailers. So I partnered with this company, um, HCP out of Chicago boutique firm, and they had just exited out of a hair care company, um, that was selling into like Walgreens and CVS, like all the accounts mm -hmm. that I wanted to get into. That means they had contact information for all the sales, the right sales rep group. Mm -hmm. So, um, immediately, immediately after they came on board, um, they got me, um, signed up with a sales rep group company for target. Mm -hmm. And that completely revolutionized the entire business. Like we got into, uh, we got into Target, and then we did so well. And once you get into one account and do really well, then what happens is the other accounts now come to you instead yeah. of you going to them. Right. And that's what happened. How do they? How do those other accounts know? Like, are they just keeping tabs on like which products are flying off the shelf? Yes, <laughs> they yeah. do. They well, do. they probably have like designated people in like buyers. No, they have buyers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like you know, before like all of this, before all of this, and when I was trying to open the account, like I would have meeting with CVS buyer, but then they would they want to know what kind of business I was doing in Walgreens. And when I went to Walgreens, they want to know what kind of business I'm doing at CVS. But when you're not in either of the account, you don't have the data to show them. And, you know, these, um, I mean, these buyers, they're responsible for 7,000, 8,000 doors. And we're talking about serious dollars. Like yeah. if you don't have data to prove your your sales number, why would they put you in? Why would they take out a brand from their wall right. and then replace you, replace it with your brand? Mm -hmm. I have a question. So obviously being in those big box retail stores helps a brand like Nick's, helps other brands that are there financially. Right. From the consumer's perception angle, what does it look like when I see Nick's at CVS and Target versus my independent retailer or online or wherever where I could get it directly? Does it almost cheapen the brand? I mean, I don't know. I, I'm just curious as to how consumers might have responded or how consumers do respond. Currently. No, not at all. Um, so, I mean, yes and no. Because there are brands for specifically for, let's say, in the beauty world. Say Sephora. Mm -hmm. um, like, if a brand that's being sold at Sephora opened an account with Walmart, per se, um, that would be detrimental to the brand. Right. Because now you've, I mean, that's 
kind of like completely two different tiers, right? Correct. Um, but when you're like anything, so there's Sephora, which is kind of like the top tier. There's, were you there also? No, we were not in Sephora. We our my brand was too my brand's retail suggested retail price was che- too cheap for Sephora, so we couldn't Got be it. there. Um, we were in Alta. But we Alta carries both the mass and the prestige. So if you're a prestige brand and suddenly decide to sell at a mass market, go play in the mass market, that will be detrimental to your brand. Mm-hmm. But unless that, like, it doesn't matter where you are. Got it. Makes sense. So uh, how about how many people were at the company like around that time, like 2009-ish, when you sort of started to really get into like the big box retailers? Yeah, I think around uh so 2009 ish i think i had about 75 employees um by the time i sold the company it was 2014 so from 2000 2009 to 2014 we went from like 75 people to uh 250 employee um and by 2014 we had uh, three different warehouses we had two warehouses in city of commerce uh, we had a warehouse in Amsterdam for the European market, and we're in 70 different countries um, selling to 70 different distributors. And um, it was very complex business model, yeah. but weirdly simple mm-hmm. because we didn't have any e-com. We had e-com, but e-com was probably like 1% of the total <laughs> revenue or Crazy. something. Yeah. And I, you know how why I started e-com? Why? No. I got so sick and tired of people emailing us where <laughs> where they could buy our product. <laughs> so I decided that I was just gonna open an e-com, um, like an online like online store where people could just go and buy the products. Mm. And we weren't smart. even like looking at that as like a st- revenue stream. Like to us, that was just like oh my God, like we're getting like hundreds of emails every day. Like, let's just like put these people into this bucket. And our focus was growing international was our huge focus and uh, opening uh, more accounts, retail accounts, wholesale business. It's crazy to think that like what, 10 to 12 years ago, you were at like 1% e-commerce. And today, you know, I think the number is around 15 to 20% of all things are sold online. Which yeah. is still low. Seems, seems fairly low still. Yeah, but but, but that, that yeah. is what it, I think most. I think they're going based off of like sales versus like the number of items. So yeah, yeah. And Amazon's probably a majority of that. So yeah. But yeah. crazy how fast the world changed in a decade of even you running that business. Yeah, decade. But I feel like in the last two years, like two decade worth of changes <laughs> happened. Right. Like condensed into two years. For sure. I feel like it's a different world. Yeah. 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 So we, uh, before we talk about what you're up to now, um, you mentioned to 2014 was when you sold the company to, to L'Oreal. Uh, how did that whole thing come about? Like, did they reach out to you? Were you ready to sell it and you were seeking out buyers? Like, what was that process like? If you can share more. We were ready to sell. Um we're definitely ready to sell. So the thing is, when you bring on an investor, they come with a timeline. Yeah. Um, so when the investors come in, they... So here's the thing. Investors, the money that they invest in your company are often not their money either. They went and got an investor to invest in their fund so they could deploy that money and invest that money on in the brands and they make, you know, portion of the money, you know, the whole structure. Um, so 
the investors have to return their money to their investors as well. And usually a fund's timeline is between five to seven years on average. So when my investors came on board, it was very clear that we wanted to exit the company in five to seven years. Uh, so a lot of the times when it's short, it's three years. Average is five. When it's long, it's seven-year exit, right? Um, so they came out in 2019. So 2014 was the 50 year. And uh, that was, um, and I was going on 15 years of finding this company. Um, I felt like I had no life, basically. I started, at, I started when I was 26 half my 20s almost my 30s was just a blur i don't like some like i honestly forget the the entire decade like mm. i get confused like 2001 to 2010 like i feel like it was non-existent for me because i was just like living on the like i was i was living out of my suitcase basically like comp constantly rotating and constantly traveling just like um so I was ready to exit myself and my investors were definitely ready to recoup their money and their earnings. So um, by December, like by the winter of 2013, um, I slowly, they would bring in these suits and tie guys, like the, the bankers <laughs> would casually have like dinner meetings right. and they come by the office. And uh, um, yeah, we were ready to go out and market ourselves. So we went, we did the auction style. We didn't put a price on the company. Um, we did an auction style and we did the whole traditional, the whole, whole route. We first uh, interviewed for a banker to represent us. And then once that was narrowed down, um, the next was uh, we the uh, fireside chat like you know the whole the whole classic route of selling a company and uh, we um at the end we uh uh nail it down to seven prospect buyers that's what we did and we had set up shop at sls hotel here on uh, by beverly center mm -hmm. uh we have rented a uh, small conference room where we mock set up our showroom kind of and we were doing this this intricate dance of each buyer's potential buyer company potential buyer and some were strategic some were a financial they'll fly in the night before we would take them out to dinner entertain them and then the next morning was a presentation this group flies out the next group flies in mm. and then we just we did the same thing over and over and over again. And uh, last presentation was L'Oreal, which was the biggest presentation, one of the biggest presentations too. And, you know, along the way, like um, there was a company who wanted to preempt, but their price was too low. So we ended up saying goodbye to them or some people because you know once they start doing due diligence it costs them a lot of money right. too like these companies are investing their time and money so uh we had a very like as as we were doing this presentation we had a very uh uh we're a very frank open conversation and we let some of the prospect buyers know like hey if your price is gonna come in under this like number. this threshold don't like we'll advise you to not waste any more of your time or money. Right. Yeah. To just drop out of the race. Mm -hmm. 
And um, at the end, it was uh, two last companies, and one was TPG, and then one was L'Oreal. So one was completely financial, and one was completely uh, strategic. Um, and then um, the deal was very interesting too. Like L'Oreal's deal was like full cash buyout, and you know, no earn out. I walk away, beautiful. Which is beautiful. Right. Because typically, we, sometimes they require you as a founder to stay for like three to four years and help, or like two, two to three yeah. years, help transition the company and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, crazy. See, but then by the time I sold my company, I wasn't the CEO of the company anymore. I was uh, chairman. Got it. And they, um, I had a creative director role, but you know that could have been handed off to somebody else. Um, I wanted to make sure the company was self-running. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I was able to walk away. So I started to like design and like pull, put the full team together. So I had a CFO, I had a CEO and, uh, like I was going to work every day till the last day I sold the company, but I knew company was going to be the brand that the company was going to be completely fine without my daily presence there. So that wasn't a pro that was like no issue at all. I was going to ask, how were you like as a leader? I am, I'm. Evolving every day, I have to say. I'm very different leader now than I was before. How were you before? How was I before? Um, I was just learning every day, number one. Um, but I am the type that is lead by example. So you will see me on the floor doing the same thing as the lowest paying employee or the highest paying employee, basically. Um, I still went to all the trade shows and a lot of the trade shows were like OTC, like over the counter trade shows. And uh, a lot of the times, like I would be the last one there um, putting, packing boxes. Like I'm not afraid of hard work. I actually enjoy it. Uh, I have I have treacherous moments are the most treasure moments. Like when I look back at business, like I you know there were like like a lot of glorious moments too. But like those hard moments are the mo the memories that I keep fondly. And the first three years of the business, I think, was the funnest year ever. And uh, yeah, and I actually and I wasn't like a socializing. Um, industry socializing person either. I'm an uh, introvert. I'm an extreme introvert, actually. And uh, I never went to any events. <laughs> mm. Never went to any events. Like, if I had to go to an event, like, I, like, go in, just do my thing, Walk and then out. the first chance I get, I like, I'm out of there. <laughs> um, yeah. And I just worked every day. And I loved working. So when you when you sold the company, what what kind of what did that feel like? Because I, I can imagine that's life changing for you, right? Yeah. Uh, like not just the money, but like the the ability to say I, I created a successful business and sold it to yeah. a company like L'Oreal. Like they were interested in buying it. You know, it's like so. Walk us through like what was kind of going through your head and and in that moment. Yeah, I mean. Um so the the entire process, like the the exit uh, from the uh, the concept, the, the idea of okay, let's sell the company to actually sold the company, took uh, close to like eight nine months, right? Uh, because we started the winter of twenty thirteen, interviewing the bankers to represent us, like the whole, and then by the time I sold the company was July thirtieth of twenty fourteen, so it was a long time, um, and. 
is such an exciting moment. I mean, it's adrenaline. It's just like it is so much of everything. And I feel like I did like two MBAs uh, selling the company. Right. It was such an amazing, amazing um, memory moments. Just everything so exhilarating. And then I sold a sold a company. I got so. On July 3rd. So, but then the deal had consummated already in June, June 30. The deal had consummated. It's just, I, we had to wait 30 days for the, for wire, the wire transfer to come in <laughs> because L'Oreal is a European company and right. they have some like SC uh, security right. like issues. Right. Um, so, uh, just waited until the money came in. And on July 30th, I remember going into my office as usual. And I sat down, um, got an re- email from my attorney saying that the money had been wired. I opened my account and I count the zeros. And I was like, oh, that's what it looks like. <laughs> that's what it looks like. Okay. And uh, it was very unceremonious too, I have to say. Um, you know those mailing box, like yeah. those plastic mail- yeah. mailer box? I had my personal thing in one mailer box and I basically picked that up and I said bye to, bye to my team member. And I got in my car and I drove home. <laughs> and that was it. And uh, I passed out. I passed out sleeping. Um, I thought I was going to go out and like party and champagne and all of that stuff. But that didn't happen. I slept probably like 12, 14 hours from like the sheer exhaustion. Like you know, if you feel like a balloon, like helium, like over, over like stuffed helium balloon that was like overly right. expanded. And right. somebody put a needle and just like boop. And then there was nothing, yeah. kind of. What What did those counting of zeros feel like? Was it, you know, to yourself, like, I did this? Or was it a relief that it was now over? I mean, what what was that emotion of seeing that number? Kind of nonchalant. Like, almost no emotion, I would say. Like, it was just a number. Uh it was just a number. You know what? Like the chase was a lot more exhilarating and fun than the kill itself, I guess. Right. Uh, once you made the kill, it was just like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, now you can yeah. eat once you make the kill. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned like, you know, you kind of sacrificed a lot of like your 20s and early 30s yeah. and whatnot. Like, did you feel like now like, okay, great. Now I can actually go and maybe do a lot of the things that maybe I wanted to do in the last decade that I couldn't do? I, I did think about that. Um, I wanted to, like, one thing I wanted to do was travel. I was traveling a lot, but I wasn't traveling for my personal pleasure or anything. Yeah. Um, so I went to, like, all these countries and, like, all of these traveling. But you know you know what I did? I saw airport, I saw convention center, <laughs> and I saw hotel yeah. <laughs> in yeah. all these cities, like, beautiful places. And the last place I was in was in Poland in April. It, like snow was up to my waist in April in Poland. And like, I remember like going through the airport, like I'm like taking my glove off, my scarf off, my like two layers of jacket at the, the security line and just going, gosh, darn it. Like, I wish I was in Poland when I want to be in Poland, maybe in summer, you know? Right. Yeah. So I wanted to travel. Like I wanted to do like the whole, whole, like I want to go to, I want to go to like Italy live there for three months and learn how to make pasta and go to like Japan and live there for three months. None of it happened. (laughs) (laughs) None of it happened. (laughs) I started a new office exactly one week after. 
Like a, a new company? A new company, like a new office. Yeah. Uh, not like a no product, but now I had the money. Like you, what are you going to do? You have to invest <laughs> the money. So the money has to go to work. So. Right. But like, why did you think that you had to go back into starting another business? Why not just like invest in real estate and just a bunch of stuff and hang out and do, do the traveling you wanted? Like, why did you want to throw yourself back into the... I did that too. Yeah. Uh, so I have a, yeah. I have a, uh, I had a, uh, investment company called Butter Ventures where mm-hmm. I was investing in uh, female found companies and I have a, actually uh, the biggest portion of my, my portfolio is in real estate actually. Mm. Um, so I did that, but it was so boring to me. It's just Excel sheet. Like I'm not an Excel sheet person. <laughs> I'm a visual person and I'm like, I am a product person. Like I need to, I need my creative energy to go to somewhere. Right. Yeah. Um, so I needed that and I needed that outlet. So, but then the uh, starting the office was because, you know, when you don't know anything else to do, to, I don't know, like I don't know if anybody could understand this. Probably not a lot of people. It's like, I don't know anything else except starting another company. And I guess this is my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Were you almost getting stressed out during that week of like, I have nothing to do? I was depressed. I was depressed. I was, I was depressed. And then I got uh, more and more depressed as time went on after selling uh, the first company and uh, I was at one point like clinically depressed and uh, I that's why I started the sunglass company which was my second company because and what was that called uh, started it as perverse sunglasses then rebranded it to Thomas James LA and uh, got out of that one in 2019 but um, because I had non-compete mm. I had a five years non-compete For in, Knicks. in beauty So I wasn't able to invest in a beauty company. Like, so it was like, uh, no investment. I couldn't advise. I couldn't sit on board. I couldn't start. I just (laughs) couldn't do anything in the beauty space for five years. So, um, yeah. So I started a sunglass company, (laughs) but like, it was like, it was a therapy for me. It was for me to get myself out of my, my, my dark, depressed days Mm. of thinking, what is the purpose of my right. life? Why am I existing? Right. Like, so, so you just went through all this. You had this massive exit. And you're saying that at that moment, you had this kind of existential crisis of like, is this it? Is this life? Is yeah. this? Yeah. yeah. And I was only 41. You know, I was only 41. I was so young, too. And like, mind you, like a lot of people by 41, they're married and they have children. So I think a lot of the other entrepreneurs who exit, they find something else to focus on. And that is a lot of the times it's their family. Right. Um, I didn't have that. I was married for a very short period of time um, and we didn't have any children. Um, So. There was nothing else to focus for me to put, spend my energy on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't meditating then. Like I wasn't living the lifestyle that I am living now. Um, so I, but you know, it's every, like every single minute, hour, days, year was exactly the time that I need to pass through as part of my life. And, uh, you know, even those moments, like, I'm grateful for. So I know what that deep, deep darkness feels like. Right, right. You know, it's, it's, it's just crazy to think that, you know, 
And are you able to share the exit amount of what L'Oreal... The, I have a non-disclosure got agreement. It, got it, got it. Yeah. So everybody can go Google it uh, <laughs> and they can maybe find out what that number looks like. Um, but a lot of people in their lifetime, especially at such a young age, and especially you know on top of a female entrepreneur mm-hmm. that started in the late 90s, like even today, like and Pat and I have sat down with 200 plus founders... Mm-hmm. Th- less than 10% are female, right? Like, and you're in like a league of your own. So not a lot of people could share the thoughts and the feelings and the the life that you were going through. Mm -hmm. What was it that finally got you out of that funk? Starting another company. (laughs) Yeah. And how did that go? Was it just, did you just do it for fun and you're like, whatever happens, happens? Like, I just need to do something else? The the, the thing is, I always start things for fun. (laughs) And it becomes a a ginormous project of its own. It starts building its own life. Um, So the second company that I I started was another like dramatic, dramatic, oh my gosh, the things that I went through, I lost a lot of money too. So uh, I could say that it wasn't like a successful company. Um, Thomas James LA. Thomas wasn't. James LA. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't successful at all. I thought I did the market research. Clearly not. But I learned so much from uh, that business that I would. I don't regret a second of it. What did you learn? Um, one thing I learned: money cannot fix the problem. You could, if. The company is not healthy. If the brand is not healthy, you could pour as much money as possible. It's a bottomless pit. Just money goes, like money goes in, money goes out. Money goes in, money goes out. Um, and then another thing is, um, as an entrepreneur, like, you know, you have to you have to know at least, you know, if there's a three pillars to the business, right? You have to know at least two of those three pillars, like a, be an expert at like two of the three pillars. Um, and it is... One is distribution, which is your sales. Uh, second one is supply chain, which is your um, supplier. And then the um, the third is uh, is the finance, right? Um, so you got to know how to make the product, where to sell the product, and then where you're going to get the money or like how to manage money. Like those are the three pillars, right? If you know two, you, like if you want to be like really successful, you better know like all three, like pretty <laughs> fluid in all three. But if you know two, like you could get by, right? But what I realized after starting a sunglass company was I didn't really understand the product. Like just because I like wearing sunglasses does not make me an expert in the business. Right. And then I had no idea where to sell the merchandise to. Um, so meaning like I knew like where to sell the merchandise to. What I did not know was like a lot of these accounts have exclusive with Luxottica, like for instance, a Target, um, I couldn't sell to Target because Target has exclusive with Luxottica. So that gets mixed out. And then like what I I started learning is uh, like Sunglass Hut, is an mm-hmm. account, but you cannot sell to Sunglass Hut because it's owned by Luxottica again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Pearl Vision is owned by Luxottica too. Like you know what I mean? Like so it's like a straight up monopoly. It is very monopoly. Very where it is almost unheard of monopoly where <laughs> yeah, they own the brands <laughs> and then they own the the retail out like all of the retail outlets too. Yeah. Like it's completely integrated <laughs> through yeah. and through. Um And so I had nowhere to sell and I was making pretty shitty products because I wasn't like technically um, fluid in how to make sunglasses. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, like when you have like those two, it's probably not a very good business model. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but like, you know, the best thing it did was uh, it completely annihilated my ego, mm. which was, I am grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that failure because yeah. um, it really made me who I am today. So I guess you walk us through a little bit about what you're up to now since that time and, and kind of what you spend. Your, I'm, I'm assuming you started another company after I, that. I did start another company. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. Um, so yeah, share, share with us what you've got going on. Yeah. yeah. So um, so the five-year non-compete ran out on July, uh, July 30, 2019. So I started- Did you have that day like marked on your calendar? Oh like, my God. This is the day. Yes. Yeah. Yes. With I several like, reminders. <laughs> oh my God. I was counting down on the days, like literally counting down on the days. And so um, I started a new company on August 1 of 2019. Wow. A new uh, beauty company. And so this is my current company. It is Bespoke Beauty Brands. Um, and what we do is a different business model. Um, it is in the beauty space. But instead of uh, me having my own one brand, what I do is I partner with influencers and we launch a brand together um, and we do an equity deal. So my company, Bespoke Beauty Brands, come in and we do the 360 service. Like we operate, so uh, uh, distribute supply chain, like all the way from supply chain to finance to distribution. We take care of everything, warehouse, logistic, everything. Um, but we use our influencer as our um, uh, our brand ambassador and uh, their logo on our products as well. And then um, they get really heavily involved with our business as well. And we do, we give them, uh, uh, we do a, a equity split. Hmm. How's that going? It's doing really well. So the first brand I launched is called Kimchi Chic, Kimchi Chic Beauty, um, Korean-American drag queen, RuPaul's Drag Race Season 8. Um, she's amazing. And uh, we launched that brand in October of 2019. Um, it's now barely two and a half years, but we've already launched in CVS. We rolled out to CVS's wow. IRL stores, and we're doing really well. Uh, we're already talking about expansion next year. Uh, the second brand that we launched was with Jason Wu, who's a fashion designer, um, infamous for, very famous for designing Michelle Obama's uh, inauguration ball gown mm -hmm. both times. Mm -hmm. um, we we did an exclusive deal with Target on that one. So we launched in Target, um, doing really well. Um, we're going to roll into Canadian market next year with Jason Wu. And the third brand is a skincare company. It's a men's skincare company called My Johnson. And the fourth one, which we just launched two, like about two months ago, is with a, uh, she's a TikToker. She's a YouTube, uh, uh, Instagrammer, uh, Lee NV, and we're doing a lash line and we're going to get into like other categories as mm. well. So um, we got a lot going on. So in, so what October, uh, August of 2019, uh, 2020, 21, 22, August. So it's twin have like, it's not almost three, three years. years, almost the, like in less than three years, we've launched four brands wow. and I am very proud of that. It's like, are you involved day to day? Um, I'm, I, you know, as a business owner, am I involved day to day? 
24-7, like all the time. You know, you could never be completely detached. It's like a, you're tethered to it, like through like an umbilical cord or something. But do I go into office every day these days? I don't. Um, I'm just not the same person anymore, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, but I have uh, the president of my company. Like, So what I'm doing is I'm doing kind of like an accelerated version of my last company. So the first company I started at 26 had no like had didn't have a lot of money knew nothing and it took me 15 years to sell that one company and this is like an accelerated version of that so hopefully um we i could exit out of this business in seven years yeah yeah so just to kind of wrap up aside from i you know i know it's like it, you love the starting the businesses and being full-on like in business mode but what are some other things now like after all these experiences and where you are today that maybe you like enjoy doing or enjoy, you know, uh, yeah, do, it could be doing or, or, or collecting or whatever it might be like these days uh, outside of work and business? Um, I still invest. Um, so there's some, not, a, not as prolific as I used to invest when I first sold the company. But, you know, I, I, if I find like an interesting company, I would still invest. Um, but like I'm like really into... Um, a lot of spirituality stuff. Um, I'm really into um, meditation and doing lots of yoga and uh, traveling a lot as well. And uh, I just turned 49. Um, and so I decided that I'm going to live one epic year yeah. before I turn 40. This is my last one year in my 40s. And uh, my this this year, my motto is... Uh, say yes to everything and no to nothing. I mean, within my my boundaries and my comfort zone. Right. But um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go climb Mount Kilimanjaro in September. Wow. I'm doing a um, rafting down Colorado uh, at Grand Canyon. Like a lot of these like things that are outside of the normal comfort zone. Right. I'm. I'm like gobbling it up and then like my knee injury too um i just i got this from running a tough mutter on mm. sunday you did last that sunday yeah oh uh, we wow. did, uh, uh, i did the other one a few years ago spartan race and the was, spartan i want to do spartan too okay just don't do it when it's hailing because it was hailing when i did it <laughs> how, <laughs> how, how did you pick the day that is hailing it wasn't supposed to hail and it uh-huh. hailed and it was a disaster and it's just like the oh worst god. thing i've ever done in my life oh my god <laughs> hey but then don't you think about it like isn't it it's, it's a good story that, to tell but yeah. it was just i was miserable that day yeah. <laughs> so i i do want to do spartan too but i yeah. heard like at uh tough mutter yeah. like you know you could help each other but i heard spartan like you cannot help like if you cannot complete yeah. an obstacle you have to do like 30 burpees or something yep, oh, yep. they, they take burpees. you to the side and be like get down and how do many me. burpees did you do over the well over 100 uh, well over 100 <laughs> yeah. but that was because like the the handlebars were like wet and like it was all mud yeah. and like you, you couldn't even like jump to get over the wall that you had to get over and all these things and it's yeah. like cut me some slack you know yeah. it's like yeah. hailing <laughs> <laughs> that's i mean this too is because uh, i fell off a monkey bar because yeah. it was so slippery like i yeah. couldn't hold on so i fell off a monkey bar oh and that's I how it happened it. oh god yeah yeah and i heard something crack i'm like Egh. that is not good well 
I mean, hopefully it's a quick recovery. It's, you know. Yeah. You know. I mean, like I'm recovering really well. It's been a week and I am already so much better. So hopefully this will go away soon. I was going to tell the listeners, I mean, she said she's not going to say, she's going to say yes to most things. So yeah. if you guys have a pitch, this is the year to do it. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, Tony, I, you know, it's been such a great conversation and I feel like we could just like sit here and talk all day about so many different things and uh, go in so many different avenues. But, you know, we can't thank you enough for for hanging out with us and, and just sharing your story, but also your wisdom and everything you've learned throughout this incredible journey you've had. And, uh, you know, we can't wait to see uh, how this year goes, but also how, how everything goes beyond this point. And uh, we're excited to keep in touch and and see how uh, everything kind of comes together with a new business and uh, all that comes with it. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you for having me. That was fun. I mean, I felt like an hour just went by like this. Right? It flew by. I'm looking at the time. I'm like, wow, how did it become an hour? But thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming to my house, setting all this equipment on. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for having us.